Lee, are there any missing blanks? And can we get someone else to do a second mic? Zach, can I get you to mic, be mic guy? You got it. Lee's got them all. So you can sit. I don't know if we'll need two mic guys, but the mic will need to be turned on before it's used. Did anyone miss any blanks? Okay, Deb. It's uh, towards the end, 3B. I've got three different answers from three different people. His glorious revelation. I, no, usually I try to repeat the blank twice. I don't think I repeated that, repeated that one twice. So I think, I think that's not totally legitimately on me. I think it's totally on me. Okay. Any other missing? Oh, hold on, Mike. We've got the tech. We've got to use uh, it. One B, one and two. One B, one and two. The Samaritans will be included in right worship. They will worship the Father through the Son. Any other missing blanks? Okay, then uh, open up to questions on Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. I thought I thought this was a really rich text. A lot, a lot to see and look at. Deb, it's not exactly about what you just said, but I was wondering if you could tell me again what you said about two C. It's uh, its oh. missions exist because. Worship doesn't. Gotcha. Right. So the, the glorious end game of reality is a, a multitude that cannot be numbered from every tribe, people, group, tr and tongue worshiping the Lamb. Because that worship, those people have not become worshipers, that worship doesn't exist, missions exist. And when the fullness of God's worship is present, missions will be over. So missions exist because worship doesn't. But it's trying to make the connection of trying to make worshipers who enjoy and glorify God um, as, as the focus. And that's certainly how Jesus frames it here. Um, I mean, certainly you can look at missions as helping people not enter into suffering. That's valid. But there's also a biblical looking at it. The Father needs more worshipers. It's insufficient that so few people worship the living Christ. So we're calling on people to worship. Um, I, I, like, I liked Piper's spin on that, but that's, that's the idea. Okay, questions, thoughts, come, oh, we'll go to Dave, and then he, he beat you, Connie, uh, Connie, sorry, Lee. Uh, first question, did you get my email? No, if you sent it to the church, my church email's been down for like two months, we're working on fixing it. Okay. I'll say this right now, just on, on, online here, if you want to get a hold of me, kidder, period, Jeremy, at gmail.com, I have not been able to get the church email for a long time. Oh, okay. I apologize. Well, that, that changes the way I go about this. Little, I, <laughs> yeah. so I suggested maybe we bring up the topic here, but you, you sort of dealt with it pretty well. It was about her reaction, and uh, I was kind of surprised the way you talked about when she, when she confesses, I, I perceive you're a prophet, and then yeah. she has this question. But up till today, when you've mentioned that issue, you've typically said, oh, she's, this is a dodge. This is a dodge. She's just trying to change the subject. And you didn't seem to have that perspective today I think it's sort of a dodge I don't want to frame it too too much I what I'm suggesting is because let me say this and again psychoanalyzing someone is challenging like I can't be certain like I said there are some people who literally argue having come to the conviction that Jesus is a prophet she brings up the most pressing religious matter of her day I couldn't prove that's not the case I think there's I think there's reasons in the text to suggest not to read it that way 
her framing our fathers and you people, you all, suggests to me that she's not entirely being fair with the dilemma. See, I question that a little yeah, bit because okay. you, when she says our fathers worshipped on this mountain, you made, you made her case. They did. Yeah. Right? Totally. And then you say Jerusalem was a place source. Well, what's she supposed to say? God, God says, well, our fathers worship here, but God says Jerusalem. How else would she put it? I would say something like our fathers worshipped, the patriarchs worked on this mountain. You, you claim God chose Jerusalem. The, the point that God makes to Jeroboam is I've cho- I mean, I, that's why I highlighted it twice two weeks ago when we looked at it and now is the claim is not the Jews chose it. God chose it. That's the claim. If she wants to put it in different words, she can. But I'm just seeing our fathers almost as though, aren't, wait a second, aren't the patriarchs Jewish fathers too? That's a little odd to me. And then you, you say, well, they do more than say. They claim to have script. The, the questions over text and what has God, I mean, Genesis 3, did God say? The question is, what has God said? And the Jews would never challenge that our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That's not up for debate, of course. The Jews would agree, yes. Jacob, Abraham, absolutely. You're, you're, you're not framing the issue. Legit, the, the, issue the, the, the question of the issue is, did God say? Did salvation history move forward or not? So making it, look, we're just doing what the fathers did, and you guys say differently, to me smells... Not, I'm not saying it's completely scheming unfair. It's leaning one way is how I'm looking at it. it it's kind of well, like... Naturally, you, too. What? Naturally, too. Oh, no, no. Sh- sure, yeah. sure. So that's why I'm saying partly, I, I, my guess is she wants to get an idea of the most... Of the most uh, this, the, when someone knows your sin and the reality, you're vulnerable. They can, they can shame you. They can throw it in your face. He hasn't done that yet. He brought it up. I, my guess is that she wants to get an idea of just how hostile he is as a Jew. He's a Jew. This is the big debate. Let's see what he has to say over this. Is he going to call me Samaritan scum? Is he going to, you know, I mean, as this man knows the truth about me, my guess is in part as a dodge, in part to change the subject, and in part also to find out what is your relationship to me? Do you mean me ill? Because that would be a fair assumption from a Samaritan to a Jew. That'd be a fair, like, you're going you're gonna to say something rude to me. You're going you're gonna to slice and dice me with your tongue. So that's my proposal of what she's doing. It is sort of a dodge, and it's also gathering information about this Jewish prophet. Is this Jewish prophet for me or against me? Is this Jewish prophet my enemy, or is this Jewish prophet going to be different than what I'd expect? Something like that. That's mm-hmm. kind of where I'm putting her in. Okay. So my email, I... I mentioned that I I heard just a bit of a message on a radio and then sort of embellished on what I heard there and Mm -hmm. sort of that just there was um, when she says I perceive you're a prophet just as you said she's confessing admitting her sin it's kind of she's confronted with it yeah and and this isn't this is kind of the third whammy because first he spoke to her whoa yes and then he offers this living water whoa and then this you know so he's it's building up and i kind of in my email too throughout a passage of the philippian jailer you know he was there was an, the singing of the hymns and there's the earthquake then the chains fell off the doors went open yeah and then yeah. what's his response to those mysterious and awesome things what must i do to be saved and so my argument was that's kind of what she's saying here too what must i do to be saved except she's asking the question where do i go to mm. truly worship God. Because in those days, if you wanted to worship God or Dagon or Baal, what did you do? Right. You go to their temple. Right. The gods, so are, all lo- the gods she, are all, yeah, the gods are all localized yeah. deities. Yeah. So she's confronted with her sin and, and admits her sin. And now she's saying, where do I go? Where's the right place to worship? And that take, I couldn't, I can't say that's wrong. 
uh, I'm making the case for why I'm reading it the way I'm reading it, but we, we simply don't know what she's thinking. She leaves. If we're to take her confession to the town as an accurate representation of what she's thinking, she's, he might be the Messiah. Could he be? She, she still hasn't yet rounded even that corner when she's talking to him, unless you wanted to say, no, she believes Jesus is the Messiah. She's just timid which is possible. But if I just take the next data point I get is her going to the town. She leaves her water. So she's clearly, this is the number one. This is her greatest priority. And in some sense, her only priority because she left her water. She goes to the town and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? She is right now wrapping her mind around. Maybe this is. And I think by the end of this passage, she's part of the entire town that believes. But I, wouldn't put her yet at believing Jesus is the Christ because I don't think she's at that yet when she goes and talks to her town. In my no? email, it was kind okay. of a long oh. email. I, I argue with re, that she resend, did. Resend it to okay. me. I want to read it. I, I, argue, read it. I argue that she did, okay. um, partly because she acknowledged Jesus as a prophet, and then she says, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us that. So she's saying, I'll believe him. And then Jesus says, I am he. Right. Because that doesn't mean she believed what he said. But okay. The fact of her going, I don't think she would have been bold enough to do what she did, considering who she was, if she didn't already have a, be pretty much convinced that this is true. G given that I'm pretty confident where she ends up, I would say something like the beginnings of faith, the spirit moving in her heart, something is happening. I, th I think it may well for some people to still take a few minutes of mulling it over, the penny dropping, putting the pieces together. I mean, even as what she just said, if he is... I mean, work it backwards. I ran out of time. I had all these really cool things I wanted to say at the end. I snuck one of them in at the closing prayer. But if this is Deuteronomy 18, then what she must do is listen to him, which means everything he's just said she must receive, which ties in even with Nicodemus. We speak of what we've seen and what we know, and you do not receive our testimony. So now the question to her is, you've said he's a prophet. He's just said he's the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. What are you going to do with what he just said? The good and the bad, the hopeful stuff and the hard stuff. What are you going to do with it? I would tend to think more that's what's spinning through her head with the beginnings of faith. And in her thought process, she's probably chewing on this. I think the beginning of faith is happening. I mean, I don't want to say it's like a black and white. She's not believing. She's not. Boom. In her experience of it, she's mulling this over. And she's so excited about the possibility. Her leaving the water suggests probably she's leaning towards it is. But given that the next data point I get is her still saying, could this be? I think she's still rounding that corner in her head. But I, I wouldn't, like, get yeah, an argument. Her, her, yeah. her way of putting it with the question, I think, is more like, um, this has to be the Messiah, doesn't it? You know, or kind of like that, or that she's saying, asking them to consider. Um, couldn't this be the Messiah? So she's asking them to consider the question. That's, it's almost like she settled it, but I want you to consider this. That's possible. And again, I, I'm not going to argue the point. Compare that with um, John 1 and the disciples who go out and get others. They, they're, speaking more, they're speaking in more confirmation. Uh, come, I, I, we found him of whom Moses and the prophets spoke is a stronger statement. So because I certainly believe that by the next time we see her, she's part of the, the entire town believing, where she's at in that progression is less critical. In, in, so I'm not going to argue the point. I look forward to reading your email, but not having read your email, I'm hesitant. But no, no, I don't want to psychoanalyze her too much. But, but the most natural framing I get was what I was, the way I framed it. But because the text isn't explicit, there's, there's, room, for, for, there's room for varying opinions. That's fine. That's fine. Other 
Yes, Lee, that's right. You, yeah, she's got the mic already. <laughs> uh, mine was the now, not yet. Yeah. Where he's coming and he's here now. It, that's like, yeah, we know Jesus is there who's going to yeah. bring in the kingdom and do all that stuff. But then why is it still not yet? And it's confusing the uh, time frame. So Jesus is living in his, his the incarnation is the beginning of a new age, even as the most, and, and, and in that, it's been 2,000 years plus, but Jesus is still a couple years out from actually dying on the cross. It's so close, it's now. The, the, the new age has dawned. The Messiah is here. In some sense, we can speak of the new age blessings being here. Technically, Pentecost is when they're getting poured out, right? Technically. So, so Jesus uses the same thing. In, turn to John 14. Um, It's so close, like, in one sense, this is, it's almost like thinking of the book. We're in the right chapter of the book. <laughs> You've got to go a few more pages to get to it, but it's here. We're in the chapter. Um, we're, we're at, this is what's happening. So in John 14, um, let me find it, 17, yeah. So John 14, 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You will know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now there's, in the simplistic terms, I can see the distinction of the two ages. And so that difference, the Holy Spirit being with, every Israelite who came to faith, came to faith by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not like only in the new covenant are you born of God, but in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit will indwell, and he doesn't indwell every believer under the old covenant, it just particular people at particular times. So that's the distinction Jesus is making. So has the Spirit... No, here, Jesus can parse out even the night before the crucifixion and say, well, he's with you and he will be in you. But it's here, and it's so close, but it's not quite here. But we're on the other side of that. We are, so Jesus is in a transition um, that, that's taking place. So that's all I put by the now, not yet, is he's speaking and it's coming, but it's here. Not quite. I mean, I'm here, and I'm in the very act of bringing it about. You know, it's like I'm going to the cash register to buy the gift. Got it in the bag, got it in the cart, I'm in line. I'm doing it right now. Well, it's not mine yet. It's not mine to give out yet. Uh, I, I use that analogy because when he ascended, he gave gifts to men, right? So that's the spirit. But no, okay. Any, yes? Jerry, you, you want to go? Oh, you, got, you want to go? No? Okay. He looked earnest. He's just being earnest. Okay, okay. Any other thoughts, questions, complaints? Let me, let me go a little further with what I said at the end because I think this is hugely important. The more I've been thinking about this, the more I see parallels between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. So I've highlighted the contrast, how, how dissimilar they are in their station. Let me talk about some of the similarities in the, uh, in the dialogue. In both, Jesus rebukes what's insufficient or wrong in their worship, their religion. For Nicodemus... It's not recognizing his need. He thinks he's better than he is. He's too self-righteous. He, you need a birth from God's spirit apart from which you're helpless and unable to enter. Woman, you worship what you don't know, and the Jews got it right. Both of them he speaks to as to groups with people standing behind them. So in, in Jesus uh, dressed down in Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel who don't know these things? He's dressing down 
the Pharisaic tradition behind him, all, all those people that Nicodemus is standing in front of. And Jesus, here's his summary of the Samaritans. Um, what also, though, is interesting is if in the note with Nicodemus, you get the helplessness. The helplessness. You must be born again. And the wind blows where it wishes. And if that's all we had, you might almost have a fatalistic view. Um, well, I guess God's going to birth whom he wants to birth, and that's going to be that. But if I'm right that the living water is the Holy Spirit, Jesus adds another dimension. You can't birth yourself, but look, look at what he says to the woman in John 4. Um, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink of water? A woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So there's two things she doesn't know, which ties in with Jesus saying you worship what you don't know. You don't know who I am, and you don't know what the gift of God is. So if we get clarity, the gift of God is the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the Messiah, then what does Jesus tell her to do? Ask. Okay, so put those two together. You are helpless to birth yourself. You cannot make the Spirit birth you, but you can ask. I, I think that's a wonderful release, synthesis of the tension. Lest John 3 leave us too fatalistically. Well, this, and, and there the point is to Nicodemus, you are powerless in an absolute sense. You have no power to make this happen. You can't pull a lever and make this happen. Well, so I guess we just throw our hands up in the air and God's going to do what God's going to do. No, Jesus says you can ask. And I would say further in John 6, he doesn't turn away those who come to him and asking you will be given to you and seeking you will find, knocking will be open to you. So no, you can't birth yourself, but you can ask the Lord to work and to send his spirit. And you can ask for other people as well. Oh Lord, would you, would you create life in my kid's heart? Would you pour your spirit out in him? Would you bring him to know you? Would you open his eyes? You can ask, because I know the gift of God, and I know the one who's offering it. So I, 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 to me, that was a beautiful symmetry of putting those things together. Thoughts on that? Anything? That really, it just showed up in my closing prayer. It was when, I got, when we were singing the closing song, I'd written that out in the big letters at the bottom of my last point, but we were so late on time that I snuck it in with the prayer. But yeah. Well, one thing <clears throat> that uh, when I contrast Nicodemus and this lady and that he comes at night and she's there in broad daylight. I mean, that's huge. I mean, that seems really big to me for some reason. Oh, no, no. John's framing of light and darkness all the way back to the beginning. The darkness has not overcome the light. And then when Judas betrays Jesus and immediately it was night. I mean, it's it's. Yeah, so Nicodemus coming at night, and then with the end of the discussion, framing things in relationship to darkness and light, I think is the real clincher. So he tells us Nicodemus comes at light, and then when we get to the summary statement, this is the judgment, the darkness and the light. Yeah, Nicodemus is on darkness team at that point. And she's there in broad daylight. Yeah, no. Although I, both of them, I believe, ultimately come to faith. Jesus, I mean, one of the things, one of the things again, I was saying last, last time in our ABF, is there isn't a one-size-fits-all method of evangelism. Jesus' treatment with both of them is strikingly different, and yet he's successful. He knows exactly what he's doing in both cases. Nicodemus and the woman at the well are going to be worshiping God, are worshiping God side by side in heaven as we speak. You know. 
Yeah. Well, and even, but even with the gentleness, there's some hard edges that don't get softened. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Okay, any, uh, any other thoughts, questions, complaints? I got more stuff we can talk about if you don't, but okay. Going once, going twice. Yes, Alex. Missions week's gonna be next week, Alex. I'll wait for it patiently. Um, just the small observation that she does ask. So he tells her to ask, and then she does. Give me this water. But he doesn't say yes. I, part of this is this isn't this isn't magic. It, it's not about saying the right words. Pray this prayer. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know what she's asking. Right. Which is why he then has to. I think even call, telling her to bring her husband is helping to clarify. I got a water that searches that type of th- that quenches that type of thirst. Mm-hmm. So when she says, "Give me that water," um, it does her no more good than somebody you get to lead in a sinner's prayer who doesn't know what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. Jesus isn't interested in in just say these words because she doesn't know what she's asking for. He doesn't give her what she's asked for. Mm-hmm. He rather turns it back to helping explain. Let me tell you more about this water. You're you're going to want. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're getting at, or are you saying something yeah, different? Yeah, well, yeah. He doesn't just say, okay, here it is. Mm. The next thing that he follows it up with is leading her towards that path. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So should we talk about the insider movement? This says bearing, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. Okay, so if you guys don't have any questions, we're going to talk about the insider movement. insider movement okay let's start it here we go so um i will post to facebook today or if you want a copy i'll email it to you da carson did a message at the gospel coalition conference a number of years ago that is very helpful both in laying out the discussion and i think in answering it in part it's a great place to start if you've never heard of the insider movement if you're unaware of this it's excellent i think it's both it's instruction of let me lay it out to you what the deal is and then trying to answer give an answer um is is excellent and I'll, I'll happily make that available to you. Um, but in short summary, I don't know, 15 years ago, some, somebody wrote an article. One article has sort of become the framing of the discussion. And it was talking about differing contexts of doing evangelism in, in foreign, culture, foreign countries with foreign culture. And it's like a C1 to C6 scale. And so in, in one extreme, you've got Westerners, planting Western-speaking churches with Western clothes, Western architecture, Western language. And we've seen that example, you know, European um, evangelist missionaries coming to a town, and it, they're planting a New England church in South Africa, right? Okay, so that'd be like C, C1. C2 would be the same as C1, except with the native language. No one's really advocating it, not that those are bad. The discussions in three and four and like five right in here. It's we're trying to figure out where the baby bear porridge is. That's just right. Okay. So then we adopt, moving along, we adopt cultural architecture, cultural clothing. Um, I'm generally fine with that to the most part. Cultural music and worship. Where you get to is a point where you're going to try to receive everything you can in the foreign culture and religion that isn't explicitly contradicted by scripture. You're going to flex a ton. You're going to flex an awful lot. So where this shows up most commonly is in, in um, Muslim missions in, with Islam. So if you want to, if, if, the, if the Muslims pray towards Mecca, well, is there anything wrong about praying facing Mecca? Well, 
could you as a Christ follower pray and face that direction at the right times of the day? Well, why not? And so you sort of go through and you're like, how much of this can we keep? How much, the, the challenge, we, how much of Islam can we keep without having to throw it out? You know what I mean? And so if you get creative, you can say, as some do, well, Muhammad wasn't wrong in everything he said. He must have got a couple things right. Um, so then to the degree that Muhammad got some things right, couldn't we in some sense say he's a prophet? That's a pretty big deal. I, I, I'm explaining I'm explaining something to you. I'm not advocating a position. But I'm trying to show you how. No, because and, and it comes from a good desire. Cause, cause, because the second the second a Muslim, and especially in a Muslim country, catches whiff that you don't think Muhammad was a prophet. That's one of their starting points. Allah is God, Muhammad's his prophet. What do you think about that? Which hill do we worship on? Which is why I link these two. Well, Muhammad said some good stuff, and in some sense I could affirm he's a prophet. And because you're still trying to not lose your hearing. You, you, the desire is to, uh, to, to win more. It's a good desire. Um, and so you've got to, how much can we flex? How much can we flex? Well, Islam is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. So could, could we talk about worshiping Allah? I mean, Allah, even as a word, I think just means like Lord or Master, right? So could we call God Allah, you know? And so you get the idea of some of these flexings. Um, and the desire is to win more, which is a great desire. And I, I get from this passage that Jesus doesn't, I mean, he could have done that more so with her than we can with Muslims today. He could say, well, you got the Pentateuch. We both got Moses. You've already brought up the forefathers that we share in common. I had in my notes that she should have known, even the Samaritans, even with just the books of Moses, they should have known better. Jacob prophesying at the end of his life on his, on his uh, staff said, the scepter, the ruler's scepter, shall not depart from Judah till he comes to whom it is due. Um, th there's this prophecy that there's someone coming in the tribe of Judah um, which is where we get the word Jew from. So the Jews are Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes down south. So they should have known that. Um, mm. Jesus could have built on all sorts of common ground, and he doesn't. And again, he in one two simple sentence in one sentence, you worship what you don't know. Your entire country, your history, all your religion, is ignorant. Don't, don't underestimate the sting and how challenging that is. I mean, and, and like, I, like I used my example in the sermon, I think saying something similar to a Muslim today would probably be about as harsh. All of your worship of Allah, you worship what you don't understand, is ignorant. I'm just saying. So, my, so as I'm looking at where do we flex and where do we bend and where do we, where do we make allowances, because Paul talks about becoming all things to all people that he might win them more. Jesus shows us social taboos, Customs? Oh, sure. Flex, flex about with all that. Absolutely. Crossing racial lines, crossing ethnic cultural lines, stereotypes. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Jesus could have more easily blurred the edges of worship here, calling her back to Pentateuchal worship. We're all circumcised. We're all at the promise of Abraham. Let me tell you. And he, she asks her a question. He gives her the answer. Now, he does it up front with a promise up front. I mean, where I see Jesus being wise and loving and trying to win her, I'm guess, my guess is he knows what he's going to say. is going to be hard to hear. So he puts up front the promise, you will worship the Father. The day is coming. You will worship the Father. I got, I've got an invitation for you to worship the Father, but you are worshiping currently in ignorance, and the Jews are right. 
Now let me get back to telling you about the father seeking people to worship him. So he, that's how you can try to mitigate the sting is with some other good news I've got for you. I mean, so the equivalent today might be someone asking if their lifestyle is sinful. Well, let me tell you up front, Jesus died for sinners like you and me. Yes, your lifestyle is sinful. I mean, that might be an equivalent way today in witnessing of, I want to put out front hope. I'm for you. I'm your friend. I want to win you. Yes, that's wrong. You know, um, would be the equivalent. But in regards to missions, where this shows up is in the insider movement, is you eventually get to a point where you've got people remaining in Islam. And they become Messianic Muslims, and they're still going to the mosque. And that has become the big debating issue, because is in Islam, especially in Muslim countries, once you make a convert, once somebody says they're not an Islam, it's the, the, the culture and the community are tied together. It's similar to John 9, where they de-synagogue him. John invents a word. They de-synagogue him. You're out of the entire cultural community life. You're out of the mosque. You are out of the culture. You, you are an absolute pariah. And so the argument is made by the, inside, the advocates of the insider movement that Paul worked within Judaism, and he went to the temple, and he went to the synagogues. And he, until they're kicked out of the synagogues, he stayed within the synagogues. In other words, he doesn't get these Jewish converts and rip them out of the synagogues. He has them remain and stay, and eventually get thrown out, but they stay in the synagogues. Shouldn't we do the same thing with the mosques? Which shouldn't we keep the Muslims in the mosques? That's the argument. That's the argument. And then, of course, how much do we flex? And, and everyone's arguing over this wanting to win more. Good motives. The question is, what's the orthodox or right approach? I've given you a five-minute explanation of this. Carson does a fantastic job laying it out, I think. Um, and I'll, I'll post it to Facebook later today if you're friends with me on Facebook. And if you want a copy, I'll email me. I'll send you the link. Um, but... Mike? Wouldn't a lot of the difference between Paul and the Jews and us and Muslims being the root of where they're coming from, that Jews are the road to Christ? Well, it's a distinct that, that's, line. That's, that's one of the points, is that the, in Paul's day, the synagogues in Gentile country are entirely orthodox mm-hmm. until they reject the Messiah. Yeah. Right. Until they reject the Messiah, while they haven't heard. I mean, because think about this. It's not like, let's just make up a time. When does Jesus die on the cross? It's before sunset. Say he dies at 3 in the afternoon. It's not as though at 3, 3 p.m. on that Friday, the Old Covenant <laughs> stops being active. You've got, no, no, you've got Jews in, say, Corinth, who are trusting in the coming Messiah, they're trusting in God's word, they're right. justified by faith like Abraham. They're waiting. When, when, like, does that, yeah. when does that stop being good enough? When does, that, when does that salvation stop being available? 70 AD. Ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Hard to argue it is. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll, I'll deal with that in a sec. But not, my point is not at 3 p.m. on Friday. Go to Hebrews 8. Zeb's probably right. 780 is probably, if you're going to draw a line in the sand, probably as good a place to draw it as any. Um, What's remarkable in Hebrews 8 is that apparently, even at the writing of the book of Hebrews, both covenants are functioning. Um, No, this is, it's it's huge. Just one little phrase. Um, So Hebrews 8 is a contrast between the new covenant and the old covenant, the superiority of the new covenant. So extended quotation of Jeremiah 31, where he says why the new covenant's better 
Um, I'm going to skip the Jeremiah quote and just look how he introduces the quote and closes it. So um, pick up uh, verse 6 of chapter 8. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with him when he says, and he quotes Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, I'll make a new covenant. Now look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. At the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, the old covenant had not yet vanished away. Um, and I think in part, I, what I don't think is that people who heard the Messiah could reject him. I think that just as the spirit is required to bring people to faith under the old covenant, that same spirit will testify to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And I think that's what we see in the early conversions in Acts. Cornelius, for instance, is a God-fearer. He's a proselyte. His prayers have gone up as a memorial before God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I don't think we're seeing Cornelius' salvation. I think we're seeing Cornelius enter the new covenant and receive new covenant blessings. I think he's been justified before God before he shows up on the text. Here's a man whose prayers have gone up pleasing as a memorial to God. That speaks, I think that has to be someone of faith. Anyway, um, and s same thing with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, he's, he's observing the feast. He's got an Isaiah scroll. Um, I would not automatically assume this is his salvation. Rather, God is making sure those who are members of the old covenant get the news of the Messiah before it goes out to the Gentiles. Um, he's going he's gonna to transfer over all the old covenant saints. And so Paul starts by going to the synagogues looking for precisely those people on his missions trips. He starts there. Um, but that's why I was saying J Judaism in the synagogues is entirely orthodox until they hear of and reject the Messiah, at which point, yeah, it's heretical. So unlike Islam, the synagogue system that Paul's going to could be pure and undefiled. There's no, there's no necessary reason there's anything wrong with the synagogues that Paul is going to. Um, he may find out they've got bad teaching, bad doctrine, whatever, but as opposed to Islam, there's no fundamental error until they reject the Messiah, at which point... Right, so the, yeah. the thing is, the Jews could, by following Judaism and waiting for yeah. that Messiah that was coming and being ready to yeah. accept him, which is what they were doing, hopefully, the Islamists could never do that because right. they're not looking for a Messiah. They're not looking for salvation. They think they've got it already. Well, they've already said Jesus was just a prophet. Yeah, just a prophet, he exactly. he didn't die. And yeah. I mean, they've, they've, right. got, they've got teaching. There's a lot of teachings in contrary, but directly... He didn't die, therefore he didn't die for our sins. They, yeah, they, they, yeah, they repudiate essential, necessary truth of the gospel. Yes, Christina. I just want to make sure I heard you right. What did you say the fundamental difference between Islam and Jews are? I said the Jews of Paul's day. Okay. When he went to the synagogues in pagan towns there was nothing fundamentally erroneous about those synagogues until they heard and rejected their Messiah. That's what I say. So if, if Paul goes to the synagogue at Corinth, he might well expect to find men of faith, trusting God, the faith of Abraham. He doesn't have to assume there's necessarily any false teaching in that synagogue. 
Now, once the gospel shows up, and if that synagogue rejects him and they throw him out, well, now they've adopted some false teachings and they've rejected the Messiah. But while they haven't heard, while the news is going out, Paul, which, which is why I'm trying to say this is a very limited time period. I'm not saying today, Jews, this is the case at all. I'm saying while the gospel is going out, while it hasn't reached people, um, Paul could go to the synagogues because the synagogues, there's no reason to think, there's no necessary reason why the worship in those synagogues is false. That's what I said. There's no okay. necessary reason. But in Islam, would you say it is? Yes. Because um, I was thinking when you were saying it could flex with Muslims, or I was thinking along the path of what Lee was saying about the, the Jews, whereas yeah. they do follow the Torah up until Christ, I believe correctly. Yeah. The Muslims say they follow the Torah right. and the Pentateuch. But they they miss it in the very beginning between Isaac and Ishmael, right, right, because right, right. I just think you know they they twist a whole lot of mm. the Torah, so got to be really careful right. with that. Well, and go to John five. Um, we'll use the contrapositive again. John 5, Jesus makes a pretty bold claim. So if you don't like this claim, take it up to Jesus. Um, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Now, let's take that contrapositive thing. We've got an A to B. If A, then B. You notice the pattern? This is why this is such a helpful thing. What's the only other necessary true statement of if A, then B? If not B, then not A. If, which is to say, if you don't believe Jesus, you don't believe Moses. Which means those Jews who claim to love and obey and believe the Old Testament scriptures who reject Jesus don't believe Moses. There is no honest error. T take it up with Jesus. I don't see any way around that in verse 46. If you believed, because that's what he's telling them. He's telling a bunch of Pharisees. You don't believe Moses. If you believe Moses, you believe me. You don't, you're not making an honest mistake. You're not sincerely confused. So I would say the same thing holds true to all Orthodox Judaism today. If you believed Moses, you'd believe Jesus. So if you don't believe Jesus, you don't believe Moses. Take it up with Jesus. So that's a pretty bold statement. I think it's true, but it's a pretty bold statement. Um, okay. Zach, in the back. Uh, quick comment on that to connect on maybe what Pristina said. <laughs> Give him some flack. <laughs> Yay, rhyming stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Sorry. When, like, I bet that some Pharisees they probably were very offended and like appalled that he would say that that they don't believe Moses, but 
the problem that probably some of them didn't even realize because it had been going on for so long is that they had changed what Moses had said. You know, like they were changing all sorts of things about, you know, well, in order to keep the law, you know, this is how far you can walk on the Sabbath or this is how big of a load you can carry. And none of that stuff was in scripture. That was just things they'd made up to try to. Well, and they, not only did they add things, they nullified things. Jesus' mm-hmm. point with uh, God said, honor your mother and father, but you say they invented the Corbin law. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. ministry house. I'm dedicating this house. Sorry, mom and dad, you can't come and stay with me. You can't live with me. I can't care for you because I've, this is a ministry house now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I can't do that. So not only do they add law, but they nullified other law. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's both in the giving and the taking away. They, they add things that shouldn't be there and they remove things that should have been there. Yeah. So it's like they thought that they were, or they, yeah, thought that they were following Moses, but they were really following all these things that they had invented that they then called Moses's yeah. law or words. And I think Christina said something about the yeah. Muslim yeah. religion twisting the Torah to yeah. kind of go along with Ishmael. And so it's yeah. like, no, we're following the Torah. Well, it's kind of what you change the Torah to yeah. say. And it's not so, really. So let, so, let me, so let me say this about truth. I made the point with the Samaritans that um, because they rejected the latter prophets, they weren't even really holding to the former prophets that well. And even from, we have some copies, a number of copies of their Pentateuch, their the books of Moses, the Samaritan Pentateuch. There's a lot of interesting alterations. Uh, I think in some copies, the giving of the Ten Commandments was at Mount Gerizim instead of Sinai. Um, <laughs> Got to really double down wherever we can back up Mount Gerizim or throwing it in there. Um, but one of the things that's helpful is based on Jesus' statement here in John 5, God's truth is a whole package deal. Um, and so Jesus, and sometimes when, when someone asks us a question and we think it's not a gospel-centric truth, someone asks you, what do you think about the age of the earth? What do you think about you know, Palestine and Israel? What do you think about, you know, that's less clear because the scripture isn't, you got to apply biblical principles of justice to that. But anyway, um, or even someone could ask you about marriage and sexuality and gender and all that stuff. You might think, well, that's not gospel essential. That's not, so why can't I sidestep it? Jesus doesn't do that here. Is the issue of where to worship essential? No. What I think is essential is that she recognize, repent of, and, and confess the falseness of her religion. If Jesus were somehow able to bring her to himself and validate her, if all he said was, don't worry about that, it doesn't matter, which he could have just said, Pretty soon, it's not going to matter. It's going to be a moot point. She could have gone forward thinking her religion and her people's religion and their rebellion against God was fine. He could have done that, and he doesn't. So he front loads a promise to make it clear. I, I, I'm for you. You're going to be worshiping the Father. You Samaritans, you're going to be. And then he gives her some hard truth. Um, because, and here's the analogy when my professors at Word of Life gave. God's truth and the scripture makes it clear, you either love it or you hate it. It's not like you like parts of it and don't like parts of it. Here's the analogy. You make a big apple pie, and I give you a slice. I say, Allison, here's a slice of pie. And she takes a bite, and she goes, that tastes disgusting. How much sense would it make if I said, oh, hold on. I'm going to cut you a slice of the other side of the pie. I think you might like that one. No, it's the same pie. God's truth and his spirit testifying to his truth is, is one author, one person talking, one witness testifying. It, it's nonsense to think somebody will spit out part of God's truth as 
disgusting and ridiculous. Oh, you don't you don't like the truth about gender. You don't like the truth about marriage. You don't like the truth about sin. I think maybe you'll like the Jesus slice. It's silly, and we try to do that. Um, it, if the Spirit of God, this is one of the this is one of the benefits I think of Jesus teaching in John three, um, the sovereignty of God and salvation. If God's at work in someone's heart, God's truth is not going to drive them from Christ. Now, me being a jerk about it might. Me being harsh about it might. I mean, again, noticing what Jesus does here. And you see the same thing in Revelation three, two, 2 and 3 where Jesus rebukes the churches. In all but one case, he has something positive to say first. He, he's going to soften the blow a little bit. I know your works, and I know that you test those who claim to be apostles, but I have this against you. You've lost your first love. He could just rebuke them, but he, he, as a good counselor, as a loving shepherd, he gives them some encouragement first, and then he says something that's going to be hard to hear. So I think there's a lot of room for wisdom in that regard, but to totally sidestep issues, which I see people doing today, we're going to totally put the, the issue of homosexuality on the table. We're going to totally put these things on the table because we know how divisive it is, and we know how offensive it is, and we just want to preach the gospel. Jesus could have done that here, and he didn't. That's, that's the point. It, because... I don't believe, ultimately, salvation ultimately rests in the will of man or the bloods or of the will of a husband, quoting John 1.11, but in the Father's will. Then I trust that the work he begins, he will finish. And so I'm not going to needlessly get distracted from the gospel. If someone asks a question, I'm not going to be embarrassed to tell them the truth. Because either the Spirit of God is at work in their heart and they will see it as true, or the Spirit of God's not at work in their heart. They're not being born from above. And they're not going to be able to see. They're not going to be able to hear. They're not going to be able to understand. Whether it's the Jesus slice or the marriage slice or the recreational drug slice or whatever slice it is, you're worried it's going to offend them. It, it's a package deal. If you believe Moses, you believe me. You know? So I'd encourage you with that. I, I know we can feel the pressure like, oh, when they hear what I think about this, then they're going to be done. Well, try to find... Uh, an attractive, wise way to, to, before you say the singing thing, the things to be hard, making it clear, I'm for you. I, I, I want good for you. I, I don't hate you. Um, but also don't not say the truth. Frequently what people ask is, is the very thing they need to hear. The, very, the, the issue of submission to God and his word and his authority is not seen in those places we like. I've used this example before. I don't need authority to say, here, here's five dollars. I need authority to say, hey, open your wallet and give me five bucks. The only way you do that is if you thought I had the right to issue that command. The test of authority is not when you go to the Bible, that part that you really like. The test of the authority of Scripture is when you get to the part that you find challenging, difficult. Now what are you going to do? Who's God? Who gets to write the script? Who says what's good and evil? You or God? So, not that we want to be jerks, but... If the Lord is going to win them, th that issue has to be resolved. Who gets to be God? Do you get to be God? Who gets to make the law? Who gets to say what's good and evil? Do you get to be like God and you get to determine good and evil? Or does God get to determine good and evil? So it's pointless and unhelpful to intentionally avoid such things, especially if the person, possibly from their own conscience, is asking. You know. So don't be a jerk, but don't be afraid of the truth. Anyway, that's all I got for now. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.